Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have a good friend of mine, Nick Ayton. Nick and I have known each other on and off for about 20 years, give or take, from Academy days. Nick is a serial entrepreneur. He runs the world's largest family office gathering. He was a very, very early adopter and a key thought leader in the crypto space. And he's turned around a number of large enterprises. Big background in IT. Nick, uh, welcome. Thank you, Marcus. Yeah, good to see you again. Likewise, always a pleasure. So let's just get stuck straight in, because I know you and I both uh, share fairly strong views on this. Why is lack of preparation a sackable offence when it comes to salespeople? I'm glad you said sackable offence. So let me just put a bit more sort of context. So, so you know, people listening know I know my way around uh, selling to organisations as well as running sales organisations. So I served my time, as you know, I've had several startups where as a founder, you wear several hats and you have to be a salesman as well as the delivery person, the marketing person and and the driver, the truck driver. But equally, I served my time running sales organizations, some pretty large IT services businesses responsible for multi-billion dollar sales targets. And, you know, I I guess I've, I, as a salesman myself at heart, I live and breathe and have worked with some of the best salesmen in the world over the years. I mean, some exceptional talent. And in, you know, our sort of warm-up conversation, uh, Marcus, you know, we mentioned that you know, do the best, are the best salespeople the most effective or are there other factors that sort of come into play? And I would argue that a mediocre salesperson or could also be a superstar salesman at some point. And um, it is one of those things, isn't it, that is often underrated is the, the level of understanding and research that you have to undertake to understand your industry and understand your target companies, whether it's an existing client, maybe you're running as an account, or whether it's a a new named account that you want to open up and and target. And it starts with research and understanding. And you know, we can talk about the various techniques, tools, and approaches, and the things you can do to aid with that process. But for me, the best and most effective salesmen have been the ones that have, that have done the research and are, are very, very well prepared. Let me just pull you up on one thing, because eight out of 10 of the best salespeople I have ever known are women. So um, I, I'm just going to uh, pull you up on the salesman and without wanting to go woke on you. No, um, I, I, think, I get that salesman in context, you know, I mean, it's not politically I know, correct. I know, I know, I know. It's, it's not about being politically right. correct, but there are certain qualities that these uh, exceptional saleswomen demonstrate, one of which is a really, really high capacity to listen, empathically listen surgically. And they're, they're listening because they have done their research. They know what they're listening for and they care. I think that's uh, really fundamental. I don't disagree. I mean, I, in, in actual fact, one of the, you know, whether it was CSC, Capgemini, Siemens, various companies that I've engaged with, I think the ladies amongst us, whether in marketing, account management, and sales, 
were always among the top and most reliable performers. And I, so I totally subscribed to that. Excellent. And that's the key thing, because I, I, no manager in their right mind would take a, a superstar who's likely to burn out very quickly over someone who is consistently on or above target and yes. can be depended on. So again, never ever make the mistake of hiring someone who's got lots of glamour about them, but they tend to be the elephant hunter um, who may or may not hit quota. Far better to find someone who is a planner around their territory. So let's start with territory planning. What are the aspects of territory planning that are absolutely essential? I mean, let's let's sort of go back to first principles. We hear Mr. Musk talk about first principles, which is often the baseline of, of science, of course. And, and, and first principles also defines a baseline of understanding. So, so let's let's sort of look at that, shall we? I guess if you're if you're if you're running a fixed geography, whether it's a national geography or you're stuck in or to focus on an industry. I mean, I've always worked internationally and globally across multiple sectors, but let's hone in on on the fact that you know you have a defined remit and a defined geography and and structure to operate within. Well, we have this thing called Google and the internet, which is you know the world's most in-depth information that's at your fingertips. So there's no excuse to not understand every aspect about the the target industry, target market, understand things like the key operating levers of the market to understand regulation and the external factors that the people you want to go and sell to are dealing with every day. And then there is so much information and insight uh, available. But here's where I think a lot of salespeople and account managers struggle because they don't have a set of tools and a structure with which to make sense of all this information and of course, having information is absolutely no good at all unless you know how to get knowledge and interpret that information. That goes hand in hand, doesn't it, in preparing your strategy and approach for your territory. The other aspect, of course, is how you're measured. And we can get into that, which is, which is very interesting because there's lots of different measurements in, in the sales spectrum. Is it activity-based? Is it pure profit-based? Et cetera. And I guess really it's um, it's a debate, isn't it, that we say, well, what what defines a good outcome if you're a salesperson or an account manager? And I don't think a lot of organisations are actually very clear on that. It seems to be hit your quota or not. But is that is that really the measure? I'm so pleased that you raised this because I think that now is absolutely the time where we have to rethink measurement and compensation. And it starts by looking at the culture of the executive leadership and how they are driven. Because what's happened over the last 40, 50 years is the financial cart has been put in front of the customer outcome horse. And customers buy outcomes. They don't give a fuck about your quota. They don't care one jot about your share price. And they don't care what your exit plan is. What they care about is, can you help me fix my problems and can you help me deliver the outcomes that I'm spending good money on with you guys? And if you can't, then why are we doing this? And so I think there's a whole massive discussion, which I'd love to go into uh, around that. Let's just touch on a bit of that. I mean, in 
about 2005, I worked with a CEO called Clive Harland, who was CEO of Jetronics. And it was at that time when the Dutch IT services company acquired Pink Ricard in, in the UK. And I did some work with Clive. And Clive was a re- very, very empathetic CEO. And he taught me, me about the concept called Think, Feel, Know, and, which is very interesting. So let me just give you the gist of it very, very, very simply. You need to know about the people you're dealing with and how they process and how they think and how they behave. So CEOs, CFOs, chief operating officers, let's keep it simple for the moment. Absolutely. Typically speaking, a CEO is a visionary. And quite often we have CEOs who come from an accounting or legal background and and typically speaking, they don't do very well. (laughs) They're not visionaries. But most CEOs are actually visionary. And what does that mean? It means they're worried or what things that can, can sort of keeps them up at night is how to be different, how to compete more effectively, how to gain market share, how to expand, how to come up with new services and products. So, so they think differently and they're wired differently. Okay, number one. Yeah. Number two, and they are sort of, if you like, um, they are feelers. Okay, in think, feel, know. They feel, they sense. So if a CEO goes into, the, into a restaurant, then you know he'll he'll sort of look around and smell the air and see what everyone else is uh, is uh, is eating. Thinkers tend to be CFOs. They're data-driven people. They're entirely focused on the specifics around can I work it out in my head, and does one plus one equal two, or actually does one plus one equal a saving? So they're much easier to read, and they're the people in in a restaurant that would examine the menu and they're looking for value for money probably mm-hmm. rather than the whim of, oh, I've, I've sniffed or I've seen what somebody else is eating. And then uh, knowers, and, and we both know that all of us have elements of all of these three skills. And from time to time, we are in think, we are in feel, and we are in know. But knowers tend to be chief operating officers. And why is that? Well, that's primarily re- the reason is that they live by experience. They understand the operating levers of a business, and therefore they think in those terms. They know the finer points of how to adjust the business operating model to achieve to achieve the outcome, which is to support the CEO to in his vision, and to deliver for the CFO to tighten the belt from time to time and, and deliver the output. So, a COO in a restaurant will have chicken and chips. They've already decided what they're going to have because they're mm-hmm. in no. And that's what I've always found, that when you explain in a very simple context that kind of thing, sales and account managers, they hoover it up because it gives them a framework and a model with which to research the people they're engaging with. And if you go to a a visionary CEO with a spreadsheet, he's going to look out the window. Mm -hmm. At the same time, if you go to a CFO with something a bit wishy-washy and visionary, then you know you're not going to get a good match. And equally, if you say your product or service does ABC to a COO, he'll want proof. So you know you you can you can really really get to to grips, and it does make life easier in terms of planning your approach for that customer engagement. So again, one of the mistakes I see so many organisations, managers, and salespeople falling into is they are fixated about going after the entire total addressable market instead of identifying those who are most likely to be willing and able to engage now. In so many instances, 
salespeople are spread far too thin because they don't know how to prioritize and make those tough decisions as to who they're going to place their bets on. And they play roulette. You know, they're just placing multiple bets. And net result of that is they don't do anywhere near enough research. And what we know from the, uh, the research that SRC did in 2020 is that the average level of coverage, even in an enterprise account, is below two key influences. Now, in the post-COVID era, we're seeing between seven and 11 decision makers involved in complex decisions. And if you don't have that coverage and you haven't done that research, you haven't got a hope in hell of having any chance of controlling the win. Yeah, uh, you, might, you might take an order, uh, but yeah. that is luck. I mean, I agree. When I used to, uh, when I started selling, we used to call it finding the fox. In power-based selling parlance, you always had to find the influencers or have the ear of the person who had the ear of the decision maker. And, you know, I always used to explain to the to my teams, really, is, is that you have the formal organizational chart where in a hierarchy that disseminates power and authority and decision making. But very often it's the informal organizational chart where the power base lies. So, for example, you could have a situation where a junior manager has a particularly close relationship with one of the C-suite because they've worked together in a previous organization. The junior manager has, has saved that person's role or made them look like a superstar, and thereby they are intertwined in, in the future fate. But they also are very influential and have the ear of that influential person. And it's very often an innocuous person that somebody sitting in middle management that is actually the fox, the kingpin, and, and can, can help you navigate to get to the decision, may not make the decision themselves, but could be hugely influential in terms of navigating that decision path. 20 years ago, I worked for a company called Managed Objects, and Sean Lana was the CEO. Nothing so much as a paperclip would be bought until Jim White, who was our head of pre-sales but didn't appear on any org charts, had given the seal of approval. Now, Jim was a former rocket scientist and a nuclear physicist. The only thing he didn't do was brain surgery. But it was really fascinating seeing how many salespeople just beat their head against the wall by trying to sell to, uh, to Sean without involving Jim. And if Sean liked an idea, it got handed straight over to Jim for validation. And he was the guy who was looking for not only the facts, um, but he was very much a knower as well. Makes and sense. if you didn't get uh, him on side, you had a snowball chance in hell. It's interesting, isn't it? And let's, I mean, when I, you know, the sort of, I mean, I'm a 70s person, which where well, I studied computer science and I've lived and breathed tech all my life and seen all the different technology waves come and go, you know, mainframes, PCs, distributed computing, et cetera. And now we're into, you know, blockchain, quantum AI and so on. But let's let's just explore really the the decision making process because what I've noticed is in the eighties you did have CEOs and that would stand up and be accounted. They would make clear decisions, multi billion dollar outsourcing contract decisions by themselves, and they were quite confident in doing so. Rarely they would go to a board meeting, and rarely they'd involve the non execs or the chairman. But as we went into the sort of, if you like, the um, 
the 90s where everything became very politically correct, all of a sudden I noticed that decision-making got bogged down in committee and process. And now we are in another wave, aren't we, of the Zoom sales culture and the, the pandemic, where again would appear that there's a new breed of management that are not comfortable with standing up and making decisions and being held accountable by themselves. And so management by committee is is a dreadful situation and normally ends up with a a politically passive make-do result rather than a clear sense of why we need to do this. It tends to be a compromise because you're trying to satisfy different business objectives, leaders, functions, and what have you. And as you said, Marcus, early, all too often it's fixed to improving the share price or the, the, the market cap or what have you, which are unhelpful at best indications of a, a good decision. Absolutely. And when people are making these important decisions, they're trying to d- uh, create value in the business. And so as a seller, we need to have planned and rehearsed how we can best help them to transform and show them where to invest for maximum impact and value for them and also for their customers, internal and external. We need to help them make the best possible decisions. They've got finite resource. And if they make a decision now, it needs to be the best decision for the future as well as today. And we need to help them get as close as possible to their desired outcomes. Now, for you to be able to do that, you need to have done your research. You need to have looked online and uh, looked at the annual report and accounts. You need to look at sections 1A and 1B, where they have the vision, and then they have all the caveats as to the reasons why the vision won't be executed. You need to listen to the analyst calls, (laughs) not just the transcript, because the transcript doesn't tell you where the CFO stumbles. You've got to listen to the human side. And research is about, and sales is a human-to-human activity, and it requires some cerebral effort. You've got to put some thought into this. Uh, You don't just turn up and do product features price, which is the classic sales approach. Yeah, um, the reason reason I'm laughing, Marcus, is that, you know, the annual report is, you know, is the biggest pack of shareholder lies you can tell. Absolutely. It's It's a a marketing document. document to help the C-suite stay in power. And it promises very much, but it's very subjective. There's no actual hard numbers or metrics very often. It's all a bit ethereal and a bit loose and a bit woolly. Here's a couple of thoughts that you've triggered, really. In the good old days of big-time outsourcing, my, I worked for CSC, and my, our biggest competitors were IBM and EDS in those days. IBM were all things to all people, products, services, hardware. They could do the lot. EDS were operationally excellent but commercially inflexible. And CSC tried to present themselves as the good guys, the flexible, innovative good guys. And the way in which we would try and get the attention of the the feeler CEO was to do an analysis of his direct competitors and to try and come up with ideas on how what we did would help him compete more effectively in his market. If we were then taking that pitch to the CFO, we would then show how our products and services would would drive that financial return and that efficiency on return or cost of capital. Bearing in mind that IT services and IT outsourcing, the we're using 
the service provider is using their balance sheet, which typically has a cheaper cost of capital than the customer. So there's a little bit of jiggery-pokery goes on there. And of course, operationally, if you're trying to get an operations guy sold to him day one, quite often you're wasting your time because he's, he's, he, his mandate is to, is to get things to, to operate more smoothly and more efficiently. He may not necessarily even have a budget or, or a mandate to save direct costs. I mean, he's, he's, he's going to focus on things like the cash conversion cycle with his partner, the CFO. So this is order to cash, purchase to pay. You know, how do I sell more and convert that into cash? How do I buy less or more efficiently and therefore convert that into cash? So this is all part and parcel of, I guess, our salespeople becoming business people and understanding how businesses work. Absolutely. You know, it, it drives me insane. If you look at the onboarding process of new salespeople, it's typically a week or two or months of product training. In all honesty, if I speak about my product or my service in the first three meetings, it's a very rare occasion because no one cares. If you don't understand how the different moving parts of a business operate, if you don't understand what a CEO, a CFO, a COO, chief marketing officer, CTO, CISO, or whatever, do every day, how they are being measured, the fires they have to put out, the demands on their time, the interplay between their different functions and their different departments, what they are trying to achieve, the jobs they're trying to get done, their struggling moments. You have no business turning up. And the problem is that there is none of that planning and preparation. There is none of that training. So often, you've got the youngest people, the most inexperienced people, doing the most difficult job, which is trying to kick open that door. And yeah. the way they do it is by talking about product, which inevitably means that they either get shunted or told to go to hell, um, <laughs> if they even get through. I'm with you. I mean, I'll give you some other sort of experiences of that. So if you've got a feeler CEO, he is your top salesman. He should be your top door opener. He should be out yeah. there at shows, events rubbing shoulders, suppliers, partners, evangelizing about the business because his job is to drive value across all fronts and expand the business. So he's pretty much, every board member should be a salesman. Every board member should be prepared to go out in the field with a with a, an account manager or a salesperson to give them that, that commitment that they are taking that customer opportunity seriously and it's a visual validation of how important they are taking the opportunity. And it's so often, it doesn't happen. And I remember some of my team, when we worked for Siemens, for example, it was countercultural for the senior execs to go and meet customers. It was just a cultural thing that they didn't do. And we, we had to to fight, really, to drag them out of their ivory towers and get them in front of customers. And when they did, they enjoyed it, they were good at it, and things happened. So, did you manage to get them to prepare, though? Well, we did the prep for them. I mean, if it's called managing upwards, isn't it? You, you <laughs> make them look good by handing them the one-pager that they only take need 30 seconds to read, and you manage the meeting for them. You don't let them loose because C-level executives, they're thinking differently. And again, you have cultural situations. I mean, I've I've sold across five or six different content, continents, and there are pitfalls and traps everywhere about culture and behaviors and protocol. 
even in the US, for example, I remember seeing um, a CEO of an energy company in Texas, uh, who I won't mention his name, but I walked into his office and he was wearing a, a Stetson hat, a, a check shirt and cowboy boots. And he was smoking a cigar, very stereotypical. And this guy ran a, you know, five or $10 billion company that nobody had ever heard of. And he was a big energy provider. And he was an outrageous individual. He broke every different mold. And all he was interested in is shooting horses and the black stuff that came out of the ground. You know, he was a, an oil prospector. That's how he made his money. So what turned him on was the ability to actually get shot of core functions. He hated technology function with a passion because they kept knocking on his door asking for more money. He just couldn't wait to outsource them. He hated HR with a passion because he was always getting in trouble because he was maybe a little bit naughty in terms <laughs> of protocol. You know, he was a complete, you know, a complete uh, pleasure in a sense to um <laughs> to, but he was absolutely intimidating. As a youngish man, you know, in my early 30s, probably, I had nerves every time I met him, which is unlike me, actually. <laughs> I'd like to meet this man, because if he intimidated <laughs> you, then he must have been a character. I did um, get over it, though. <laughs> so, and this is another really fundamentally important point, because I want to pick up on something. I think far too often salespeople use senior executives and sales support technical functions as a crutch. They need to be able to stand on their own two feet and deliver the feeling of equal business stature and to contract for that and to establish themselves as their customers equal early on. And research is the fundamental foundation stone of that. Yeah, if sure. you turn yeah. up unprepared, you're going to get treated like the shit you are. Yeah. If, on the other hand, you turn up and you've done your research and you say, Nick, my research suggests problem, 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 outcome, 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 and I'm here to see if I can help you deliver that. That's a very different conversation. You now get the CEO, the CFO, the CEO's attention. But the problem is that most people turn up and they're the, the most common selling system on the planet I call WeHap, winging it and hoping a prayer. There is no room in the modern economy for salespeople to turn up unprepared. And that should be a, an act of gross misconduct, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I, I share that. There's a couple of things that I share. So I, on a couple of businesses, I've done sales turnarounds. And, and what, what tends to happen in organizations is the best people across the organization end up supporting the worst customers. And actually, a lot, a lot of customers, maybe 25 or 30%, you shouldn't have. You should sack them. Oh, God, yes. Because they're burning, they're burning your capital. They don't want to pay for the service. They don't appreciate it. And they consume your best people. So getting your best people and your best customers, it is 80-20. You know, 80% of your, your sales benefit will come from 20% of your customers. And the rest of it is vanity. And... And, and quite often you wrestle, I used to wrestle with my own sort of executive team because they were insistent on, on having these customers where we actually made no money. And they were refused to, uh, to report on that. And, um, but when I was a gun for hire going in, sorting things out, the first thing I normally do is I cut 25, 30% of the customers. I have the Dear John conversation to say, look, you know, we don't make any money from this relationship. And all the values on your side, not on ours. And we're going to cut you unless we redefine this relationship. 
And quite often they're happy to redefine it and, and you, you improve the relationship and quite often it doesn't and you don't go forward. Part of the problem here is that so many salespeople and their management team are worried about not being liked. And they're also worried about losing something that either they never had in terms of a prospect who's never bought, or they're worried about losing revenue instead of making profit. And this obsession with growth at any price is exceptionally damaging. So what advice would you give to a founder of a scale-up technology company in the modern age in terms of how they focus their attention, where they focus their attention, and how they decide who they're going to take on as a customer and who they're not? You know, I've always been a a big fan of, of using some of these tools, actually. If you want to understand the operating levers of a business, use a a lean business canvas. I mean, Professor Steve Blank has, has written several books and a lot of what he does is remains very valid still today. A lot of what you've asked as a question very much depends on, on the business model you have. Now, if you've got a direct sort of, if you like, bricks and mortar model where you're selling product, that's one scenario. If you're a platform play where you're an aggregator of supply and demand, so customers on one side, suppliers on the other, and you sit in the middle like an Uber and you take a margin, that's an entirely different model. And there's loads of other models. So to to answer that question specifically, each business model will will have a different set of, of requirements. So if you're trying to decide where you deploy your capital from a sales point of view, if you've got a direct sales force, quite often the founders don't ask the question whether going indirect or using channel is actually a more efficient model because they think that they have to own and control the customer and they're reluctant quite often to explore that indirect model. And they don't even question it. And I think that an effective organisation should be able to sell through all channels at once, direct, indirect, through platforms. You should be catering, especially in in the lockdown scenario where you can't have contact, you have to make it easy for your customer to choose how they wish to engage with your company. They might want to meet somebody or they may not want to. They might want to buy your services online and they'd be happy doing that. So you've got to make those judgment calls as a founder is, is, is where you place your bets and where you spend your dollars from a sales point of view. And I, I, I want to pick up on uh, something you said there, which is the indirect channel. Most organizations are looking to grow by trying to work out how they can do it themselves. Now, it's almost impossible to only get 10% growth if you build a channel well. But most organizations, certainly at the enterprise level, if they grew 10%, they they would think that would be fucking fantastic. But if you understand that you ask the question, who can help us achieve the how, and you partner with those organizations, you're 10xing, not 10%ing, you're 50xing. I know of so many instances where companies have grown 4,000% in a year off the back of going through partners, but they are so obsessed with command and control. And one of the paradoxes is that by relinquishing control, you end up gaining far more ground, market share, profitable growth, And the problem is that people are obsessed with control. So what are the characteristics and the qualities of a leader 
who is not obsessed with that level of control. There's a lot in that question. It sounds simple enough. And if I put my own sort of hat on, when I was, you know, I've had, I've been involved in a dozen uh, startups. Um, three went really, really well. Three just collapsed. And the majority were what I would call zombies. They didn't, they just survived. They didn't, they weren't fantastic. Yeah. Which is, if you think about the, the technology startup space in particular, you still have across any startup a 90% failure rate. So it is extremely difficult to get things off the ground. And if you are up and running, then I agree with you. You've got to be hitting compound growth of 50, 100% per annum minimum. So therefore, there's a couple of operating levers you need to think about is, you know, how can I get the engine started and get people to consume in, in more and more volume as time goes on and benefit from that marginal costing effect that scaling capability. And at the same time, how do I scale and size my infrastructure, whether it's technology or business, to support that? And it is far, far more efficient to support an indirect channel, make sure dollars go further, than supporting a, a direct channel of salesmen, product managers, support, technical support, large marketing teams that have to support a diverse sales and regional team. It's very, very costly to sell direct. As you know, there are dozens of big brands and dozens of people that already have the customer base that are looking for maybe what you have as, a, as part of their solution or tool set to make their customers even more happy than they are now. So it's a scientific analysis of, you're right, I mean, addressable market. Let's be practical here. I read Investor Decks all the time. And everyone talks about addressable market, and they always over-egg it. And the other thing they fail to you know, consider is my old way of doing it, is build a beachhead, win something, land and expand. It's those don't try and get the mother load on the first thing. Earn the right to get access to up and cross sell. And that is a classical sort of strategy. And people might say it's a bit old-fashioned, but you know, if you're banging your head against uh, an account and you're trying to get that million dollar check commitment when the guy's quite happy to give you a 50, 100 grand proof of concept, bite his hand off and take the concept, in my view. Because you're through the door, you can walk the corridors, you can understand what's going on, you get better insight. Because until you win something, you're an outsider. You don't really know what's going on in your client. One of the other things that I see companies being forced into is a business plan. And uh, Steve Blank has a lovely quote on this, which is that a business plan is a document investors make you write that they don't read. And the problem with the business plan is it doesn't really focus your attention on where it needs to, where your attention needs to be, um, which is who is our true customer? Who's our best customer? How can we best serve them? What is it that we bring to the party that no one else can bring? How can we develop our solution so that it's simple, it's clear, it's compelling in a way that makes us stand out and makes us worth buying? What's the unfair advantage that we're bringing to the party? How are we going to get to those customers? Where are the revenue streams? What's the cost structure? And yeah, this all builds on your mentioning that blank lean canvas. 
The problem is that most people fixate on the wrong end of the problem, which is how do we deliver shareholder value? How do we grow? How do we acquire more logos instead of how do we grow existing accounts and keep customers for life coming back year after year? Let me give you um, give me a couple a couple of thoughts on this. I mean, like the old game of big business, big pitching, big deals, is you don't need to convince the client; you just need to be last man standing. And you know, there's a lot of sense in that because quite often, if it's competitive, you have to defeat your competitors' strategies at all levels: product sales, you know, what have you. My thoughts go back to a deal I did in uh, 2001, 2002 with PwC, one of the big, the big four auditors. And it's when Jim Shiro was uh, CEO and he went on to become CEO of Zurich Insurance. Uh, and the management team, they're really nice guys. And I remember we were, they didn't want to outsource because they were traditional and they thought that it would affect their ability to deliver service. And then, then I discovered they were running... Um, deck PDP-9s for their time management and time recording, which was a 1960s technology. (laughs) And when I dug a bit further, I spoke to a lot of the partners because two things happened. First of all, on a Friday evening, there was a rush to update their timesheet so they could invoice the client. And time recording and billing was their engine in like like a, 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 an airline revenue system and or airline booking system for BA or American Airlines is is their sort of their key business. Yeah. So it was time recording. And of course, if everyone logged in on a Friday, even around the world, uh, UK, whatever, you got a bottleneck. So I thought, aha, well, we can outsource their network and remove that bottleneck. And then that led on to the next thing to say, okay, so what is the average turnaround debtor days and creditor days that these guys are facing. So we went to talk to some of PW's customers and their number one complaint, would you believe, is that when we receive an invoice, we want to pay them, but we can never get get through. We can't do the electronic payments. We can't talk to anybody. So we (laughs) couldn't actually give them money. And we worked out they had a 120-day average debtor book. And that tied up $500 million in capital. That was the business case, and we had them outsourced within six months to a single data center in Munich. Again, this is really vital. I'm mentoring a founder of basically a lead generation company. They're working on their biggest deal ever, and they started out with this proposal, which was excruciating to look at, and it blathered on about the technology and all the other shit. And I said, just scrap all of that. Speak to the CEO about her outcomes. What is it she wants to achieve? Anyway, uh, long story short, what we identified was if they can deliver the kind of pipeline that they need, it translates into revenue, which then creates working capital for the CEO to work on her pet projects. That's way more compelling for her than talking about lead gen because no one cares. Lead gen is just a function. And what she wanted to be able to do was execute her vision. And if you can't position yourself as being a facilitator of those decisions and um, executing that vision, again, you're just a commodity. And then you get shunted into procurement where you are one of many providers. And even if you have high, there is a high financial risk, there's plenty of suppliers out there. So they've got choice. And you're not strategic. 
Yeah. If you move yourself to the uh, place where you are the CEO's implementation execution partner on his or her vision, all of a sudden procurement does what they're bloody well told. Let me let's 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 dig into some of this. I mean, my experience of dealing with CEOs in particular is the the universal problem that is public is never the problem. And I'll give you an example. So another CEO who will remain nameless, they were looking to outsource. And God bless procurement, one of the departments of Satan, I think. They made it 10 times more complicated and costly because they put you through this bid process of all these hurdles, what will cost us millions to do a response. Well, I'd much rather give them a discount, actually, and, and shaved it. Anyway, the problem transpired, actually, that the CEO was about to leave and retire. He had a problem with succession planning, and he needed to improve the certain operating levers to trigger his performance and options as he left. Mm-hmm. Now, this was dressed up as an outsource. Actually, I found out because I went one evening and got him drunk and we had a bit of a party and we, we got to know each other. He let it be known that he said, Nick, I need to exercise my options. I've done 15 years at this company and, and I want to leave in a big hurrah. And that completely changed the, the focus. And I said, look, so outsourcing is not really important to you, is it? And he said, no, absolutely not. He said, I want the benefits of outsourcing. I need to I need to find some money. But actually going through this process, it's going to take a year. He said, I want to be out of here. So, so we turned that large outsourcing opportunity, we completely reframed it. And we, we won a very, very large management consulting piece that allowed him to fine-tune his operating levers to trigger his options first. And because we were through the door, we won the outsource anyway. Because we'd, you know, so so the my experience is the problem is never the problem. You have the business problems, which are normally public and visible, and they are trans trans translated through you know strategy and, and committees and what have you. But actually the real agendas inside the CEO head are very difficult to tease out. And it could well be a timing issue, a longevity issue, a succession issue. All CEOs are lonely. They're all under attack. They sit at the top of a pyramid. It's They are consummate politicians quite often because they need those skills to uh, survive. And by being focused on politics, they actually are not often very, very clever business people. They've got to the senior roles by being good at navigating the underlying culture and politics. And they have big blind spots in their, in their operating skill sets. And if you can and- identify that, you can really help them big time. Uh, absolutely. And if you are not looking for those blind spots, you're missing enormous opportunity. Yes. And again, this comes back to research. You've got to do your research. You've got to do your planning. You've got to do your rehearsal and simulation. You've got to work out what are all the moving parts. Um, because uh, companies are systems. If you adjust one, uh, one part of the system and you don't adapt and modify other parts of the system, it all goes out of kilter and turns to shit. And so you've got to make sure that you have really strong business acumen. And so I, I fundamentally believe that there is a problem with sales as a profession in terms of how we recruit and what we recruit for. Yes. The obsession with experience of selling a particular product into a marketplace 
is almost never of any lasting or real value. I'm with you. Um, I'm, I'm totally with you. Look, I never used to, I was always criticised by HR of not reading CVs. They're marketing documents. And I'm, a, I'm an energy person. If somebody walks in the room, you can feel their energy. You can feel whether, and my judgments are, are they going to do the job for me? Are they going to work hard? Are they going to be a handful and a pain in the ass? And the answer is probably yes, because good people are that. They're free thinkers. They challenge. They push back. They don't like process, especially sales process, filling in their expenses forms. So you take all that burden away from them and you say, are they going to get out there and make it happen and deliver for me? And that's an energy feeling. That's not a CV. And I've made a few bad judgments, of course, because you know a lot of people fake it. But ultimately... I totally subscribe to what you're saying. I mean, you cannot, you cannot distill very often why somebody is successful and a salesman is successful. You, it's very difficult to put a finger on it quite often until you meet them, look them in the eye, and you go, aha, empathy, they listen, they get it, they ask the probing questions, ah, they are well prepared. They even prepared for the interview, which is a feeling you get of how how well are they going to prepare to meet your customers. So all the clues are there, but they're not on a CV. They are definitely not on the CV. And it is every manager's number one responsibility to recruit well. And part of the problem here is that managers are never trained in how to recruit. And they recruit on the basis of historical experience, skills, and historical results. But those are not predictors of success. Attitudes, beliefs, and values, which are the foundation stones of motivation, are good predictors of success. Their cognitive ability, so their ability to adapt, their ability to learn, and their ability to be relevant in the current situation, the current economic climate, and habit. What people do repeatedly in the past, they are likely to do repeatedly in the future. But... You also need to look deeper and look at their DNA in terms of the things that drive their sales activity and their understanding of human beings. I mean, my favorite interview tactic is, Nick, really been looking forward to meeting you. Over to you. Because I want to see that you can sell. Have you got a pre-call plan? Have you prepared? Have you done your research? And then I want to see how you cope under pressure. If they cannot sell to me in that first meeting, it's over. And I can be done in three minutes because if they fall apart. I'm totally with you. And uh, yeah, I fully share that. It's, you know, sales is an amazing profession. It's the thing that drives everything. With no sales and no profit, you don't have business. You don't have shareholder returns. It's the business part that makes everything else happen. But strangely... C-level executives don't get what sales is all about. And sales leaders are quite often people that can't do the job. They're just bean counters and administrators, and that's killing our profession. Absolutely, which is why I've launched this community, Sales A Force For Good. So for those of you who are interested in elevating the sales profession and finding that balance between buyer safety and creating commercial success, creating the, uh, the conditions for the next generation of salespeople and sales leaders, please get in touch. Volunteer, this is a community, it's global, and we're committed to providing the best in class for free forever to anybody who wants to participate. So do get in touch. Nick, we've hit time, unfortunately. How can people get hold of you? I'm an open networker. 
So you can find me on LinkedIn, send me a direct message. I write many articles. I'm out there doing things. I'm visible. Search me on YouTube. The good, the bad, and the ugly, it's all there. And <laughs> if you want to have a chat, I'm more than happy to have a chat. Excellent. Nick Hayton, thank you. Thanks, Marcus. All the best. My pleasure. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you are the owner or CEO of a tech company in the 10 to 50 million mark, and your goal is to grow your business and achieve real sustainable hyper growth without the wheels coming off, and to develop a team of highly engaged and highly productive sales, marketing, customer success, and account growth folk, and you want clients who come back year after year and bring their wealthy friends, then let's schedule time for a brief chat. My email is marcus at laughs-last.com or DM me on LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.